HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ben to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet. Learn more at bentotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month. This week's Meet and 3 is all about food branding and identity in 2020. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Everybody has some Goya product in their pantry, so obviously the biggest kind of loss from all of this is the students really working with a brand that they're very comfortable with, that they're very familiar with. I'll be honest, I was completely floored. I was very surprised that a company, especially in the current climate, would backtrack out of a commitment to address issues of racism. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, welcome to the Feed Feed, where we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm to discuss everything from navigating social media, building, engaging with, and growing a community, and producing content that resonates with young and old. I'm Jake Cohen, Editorial Director of the Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Today we have food writer, HRN, podcast host of A Hungry Society, Corsha Wilson. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes. So this is something that I'm going to really love because we have so much in common. Uh, We are both CIA grads. We are both HRN hosts. Uh, We are both writers in this crazy world of food media. I love (laughs) (laughs) to start these conversations at the very beginning in the sense of why did you get into food and what kind of drew you to go to CIA? Yeah, so um, I am, first of all, we have like a lot of similarities in that way and in the space of the weird, weird food media world, which I'm sure we'll get into. But um, yeah, I decided I wanted to be, to be a food writer at 10 years old. I found a Savoir magazine in a Borders bookstore in Maryland where I grew up. And I just, I read it cover to cover. I had no idea even what food writing was. (laughs) I was just like, you know, there's this magazine that's all about food. 
And it wasn't just the food, it was people from all over the world with food, the different like foods that they ate. And I just, I thought it was so fascinating. And I told my mom, I want to be a food writer. And she was like, I don't know what that is, but sure, we'll figure it out. And I mean, I, you already said that we have so much in common. And the fact is like, that was my actual start in food media was working at Sever, um in their test kitchen. So we'll dive into that fast, but what was CIA like for you? Uh, it was, it was interesting. I mean, you know, I've written a bit about culinary schools in like the past year and a half or so about the ways in which they could be way more diverse in terms of coursework and actually um, in terms of, you know, students as well, the student body and the teaching body. Um, so, but while I was there, it, it just opened my eyes to um, so many different people from like all across the country and uh, different parts of the world came to CIA and, um, it was not your typical college experience. It was getting up, putting on chef whites, you know, this, um, yeah. and did you go you know, straight from high school to CIA? I did. I did. I love um, that. Yes, <laughs> so, did I. so did I. And it was, it's something that I, I think it is less common to have people at a young age real ready to dive into this world. Yeah, and it was like students were, some of us were fresh out of high school. Some people had been working in restaurants for a few years and wanted a degree. And then, you know, my roommate, uh, my last year was uh, in her mid 40s, like completely switching careers. Like, it, you know, it was just like people of all ages, which was like really cool to experience as a high schooler. Yeah, I love that. So what was, obviously you had this kind of really laser focused idea of what you wanted to do in this very broad world of food. Mm -hmm. What was that like when you graduated and that process of trying to break into a very difficult industry to get into? Yes, I mean, the plan was always to go to culinary school and then go to journalism school because I assumed at 10 years old in order to do food writing, you needed to have experience in both. Um, now I know that's not true. <laughs> um, you could just like a lot of food writers don't have, you know, restaurant experience or food experience. Um, and so I went to journalism school in Boston and, you know, loved it, dove into it and ran out of money. So I started working in restaurants um, and I worked in restaurants a little bit while I was taking journalism classes. But once I ran out of money, I had to like really dive into, you know, full-time restaurant work. And I absolutely loved that. Um, but yeah, I just, I started writing for free in Boston for a weekly paper called The Weekly Dig. And uh, it was like an alternative, like Newsweekly that they had like some space open up. I sent them a couple of pitches. They were like, we can't pay you, but we like these ideas. And that's how I got my start. I just you know, while I was working in restaurants, we just write pieces on the side and send them to this weekly paper and, you know, build up some bylines. And that's truly become what I find is the largest motif in this podcast in terms of talking to people um, and <sighs> discussing what are the issues with food media? What are the issues with the right. way that the industry is built in order to get in? I started as an unpaid intern and it was a situation in which it, it, I made had to make that decision. I was leaving 
my job as a line cook. So it's not like I was bringing in a bank that had the, this this lush savings to, to live on. But <laughs> right. It was one of those situations in which I was only able to take that position for free because I had support from family. And for yeah. so many who do not have those opportunities, a job like that and a, a requirement to do free labor as that entry point is impossible. Yeah, it's um, actually, I wanted to do my um, externship at Savor, but it was unpaid and I my family's in Maryland. And so I didn't have a way to stay in New York City and take that internship. Um, and so I ended up doing my externship in DC and driving from uh, where I grew up in Maryland to DC every day to do the externship and it was paid. That was the only way I could afford to do it. But it is so true. It's, you know, people ask me about breaking in all the time and I'm like, there was nothing wrong with treating it as a side hustle at first. And, yeah. you know, b- building up those bylines and taking the crappy pay. And, you know, that's what I did further along in my career as well. It's been like a very slow, long road of being a full-time freelancer. But, you know, I had very low-paying part-time jobs that didn't make enough money to support my life. But I knew that it would push me to like pitch and continue pitching and like reaching for big bylines to make enough money to support myself. And what does that look like? I feel like there are these two realms in this industry. There is the staff route and then there's the freelance route. And people truly oftentimes go back and forth um, Mm -hmm. in the sense of one that comes with a steady paycheck, sometimes benefits, sometimes no benefits. Um, And then the other one, which gives you at least control over your schedule and some sort of semblance of, of creative dominance, if you could even go that far to say that. (laughs) Right. What was that journey towards building up this kind of Rolodex of contacts, contacts of people that you could pitch? What was that pitching process like at the beginning to what it's like now? Oh, you asked like the, the first question you asked was, what does that look like? And I just like, Oh, my sh- if you could see my shoulders just kind of like fell, because, <laughs> you know, there's like pre quarantine freelance writing job. And then there's post quarantine freelance writing. And right now in this very moment of six months in of this pandemic, uh, to be honest, like it changes day to day. So, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate in that I'm at the point now where editors will reach out with an idea, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Or I can email an editor and say, hey, I have this idea that I haven't quite formulated yet. And I have like these sources and I think it would be a great fit for your publication because X, Y and Z. But I'm curious if you think anything's there and how you'd like to see the tone, like if it, you know, what would make sense for your like your upcoming coverage. So that's what it looks like right now. But in the beginning, it was just like shooting in the dark, like Googling a lot of like pitches that worked. Um, there's this website called The Right Life, which is the W-R-I-T-E life. And they have a newsletter that I would read religiously. And like the best advice that I ever got about pitching came from that newsletter. And it was pitching as a numbers game. It's, you know, it really depends on 
you know, what time of year you're pitching? Is the editor super busy? Is that the right contact? Is, 100%. You know, like, it, it doesn't mean that you don't have a good idea. It's just all kind of luck and, you know, especially cold pitching where you don't have an existing relationship. It's, um, it really, just the more you do it, the more you'll get accepted. And so I was just shooting out, you know, ideas for like, profiles or roundups or whatever I thought was interesting in food at the moment and then I got a little bit better at it and a little bit better at it in terms of like really honing in on the thesis of the piece you know the kind of tension of what the story is actually addressing and then Mm. sending it to exactly the right publication um and so that. that it took so much time though to get to that point one of the things I always say when anyone asks about that process, asks about the advice, and, and you put it so beautifully in the sense of the, the numbers game, I always say that it's like um, Plinko on The Price is Right. Have you ever you know that? Where <laughs> yeah. you're, drop, you're dropping the, the little pucks and like it's going to bounce around and potentially it's going to hit something big and potentially it goes nowhere. And right. it's, not, it's not about the way you drop it. It's about how many chips are you throwing into the game exactly and i still get you know rejections and you just have to realize that don't take it personally this says nothing about you it's just it may not be a fit at that time it you know the editor may be going on vacation or so you know like i don't know there's just so many things that can come into play for you not to get a pitch accepted and you just have to like let it roll off you and try again like a hundred times Let's chat a little bit about podcasts. I, I've only oh, actually yes. <laughs> had one other uh, guest on the show who's also a, a podcast host over at Eater, and the conversation was why. <laughs> to me, it's plain, plain simple. It's like I, I talk about this all the time. Of, of yeah, I, I think it's hysterical that people will sit and listen to my voice because I always find myself as just like a, a very like. I am a Fran Drescher character that's just talking to you about food. And Fran Drescher is beloved. I think that's a that is true. big compliment. That's true. Yes, uh, that, that's fair. But um, in terms of what was your kind of thought process in terms of starting A Hungry Society? Yeah, so I, oh, this is embarrassing, but like I started A Hungry Society as a t-shirt company in Boston in 2016. I love that. Um, you shouldn't. They were bad. <laughs> <laughs> they were they were really ugly, ugly shirts. Um, it was, oh, I hired a designer. I thought I was like Jay-Z making business moves. Um, and it was uh, someone, ho- it was a fork, a knife, a spoon, uh, a hand, and someone holding chopsticks. I was like, yes, that's how everyone eats. I thought it was so deep. Um, <laughs> no, it, I sold maybe two. Um, and yeah, so I pivoted. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? This is going to be a home for like the stories I want to see. Like I had recently moved to New York. Um, and so I was like, you know, I'm just going to walk around in Manhattan back when we could walk around <laughs> and do things. And like I would interview like uh, food truck owners or, you know, like street food vendors and talk about, you know, talk to someone who was on Twitter and like a a blogger that I followed. Um, 
And so Uncle Society started that way. And then I actually cold pitched the podcast idea to HRN. And mm-hmm. Katie said yes. Um, she liked the idea a lot. Um, I just I saw a gap in terms of the content where, you know, Jessica Harrison had a show and Nicole Taylor had a show where they were really focusing on black stories and stories about black foodways. But I didn't see anyone else feeling that it was a void to me. So I was like, okay, I want to step in and and really take on like telling those stories. So that's how it got started. I love that. And then what what is the process that you go through as you are looking for what stories you want to tell and what makes a good story? One of my favorite questions to editors that come on the show is is and not just editors but writers, it's like what mm-hmm. is the the there's obviously always a like gut feeling, but yeah. Are there any, is there any thought process or kind of like checklist in your mind as you're looking for something of like, this is going to be a perfect episode? Yeah. I mean, it, well, I, I definitely don't know what's going to be a perfect episode. Like sometimes it's just really following the tangents that pop up in your head as you're talking to someone. Like mm. those are the episodes that people really seem to enjoy where I, you know, it's not me sticking to the questions necessarily. It's me following my curiosity about what someone said. Um, But to me, Hungry Society is always rooted in, uh, I said to me, like, I don't host and decide who's on the show. But it's always rooted in talking to someone who is not getting enough attention, but doing super, super meaningful work that is Mm. not only relevant in this moment but it's i can contextualize it a bit in terms of the history of how we got here um and i think when talking about the work that black chefs do in particular there's always always like uh, there's you can't see my hands but i'm like touching the the firmament i guess (laughs) of like you know just there's always like texture and nuance and depth that i don't think food media always does a good job of exploring. And so Hungry Society has really given me the opportunity to explore all that with audio. And it's really fun. I think the, the, the point that really I would emphasize from that is, is that food media is not able to properly represent that texture, which, and the, the funny thing is, is like, even though we're not in the same room, I can, see and understand exactly what you mean by that Mm. process. And I think a lot of that comes from, and again, it all ties to even what we were talking about earlier in terms of the the difficulties in just being able to break in and that kind of barrier that creates a a gap in the sense of there is, there can't be diversity if these are the hurdles that are put into place just to enter. Um, Absolutely. But then past that, like this is where I really want to talk about your awesome eater article from February of last year, a critic for all seasons in which you were talking specifically about restaurant criticism and how the people that are dictating what makes a good restaurant, what makes a great restaurant, what makes a restaurant that should be revered um, is not necessarily reflective of the masses. It's, it's truly a, a very small subsect of society that gets represented in that very well-known, well-respected part of food journalism. Absolutely. Um, What did that look like for you in the sense of of wanting to write this piece, pitching this piece, um, 
and even more so like pushing forward what food critics or what food um and what's the word? And not food critiques, but restaurant oh, reviews. food criticism. What they, yeah, what, yeah. What what it should look like. Yeah, I mean, it, it that story actually came about from a tweet, which was is really funny to think about. Um, but I had read. You're the all second. These... You're the second guest who has talked about the power of Twitter and stories being assigned by great tweets. Oh, who who was the other one? Aaron Hutcherson. Oh my goodness. Yes. I listened to that episode. I love Aaron. Um, yeah, no Twitter. I, I think in, especially in moments like this, it's a way to connect, but it's also honestly helped me out a lot. But, um, yeah, I had read a bunch of reviews about the grill and I had gone and had a drink there and, you know, it ended up going into the piece, but I'd gone and it just felt like I was being looked up and down by everybody else. There were no other black people there. And I, I just read this like glowing review by a white male food critic. And I was just like, uh, have, have any women, have any people of color reviewed the grill? And what did they think? And Eater, Amanda Clute, uh, who's the editor at Eater, saw it and asked if I would want to write a review. Um, and so I did. And I went and had like a full dinner I went and had another drink and it just, it was so clear to me that restaurants like the grill that are rooted in this extravagant, extravagant, like mid-century dining that speaks to mm -hmm. one kind of person. Like as a black woman, I do not want to go back to mid-century America. That was not a fun time. Like I do not want that, but every review was like, this is great. And like, this is a return to like what New York is about. And it was like, for whom? Like, who are you speaking to when you say that? And I think food criticism, really, it, it, it just becomes flattened when the who is assumed to be white, male and cisgendered. And I just I want to see a more vibrant, more textured sort of landscape of food journalism and and that requires bringing in new voices and and giving people the opportunity to talk about food the way that white men have had the opportunity to talk about it for so long completely i think we're we're already seeing just in the sense of like there's this new generation of voices in food and mm -hmm. even just there's a new generation of diners and they're not looking for white tablecloth. They're not looking for 15 course tasting menu. They're looking for pretty much like I would say the, the new push and it's never going to be a cuisine. It's never going to be an ingredient. It's a, it's just a, it's a unique story of a right. chef and how exactly. they represent that in their food. And I think that that doesn't necessarily need to be tied to a, a level of, um, refinement in the sense of, of the ambiance or the playlist or the, the quality of table that you're eating on. Yeah, I mean, and I think to, to, to like take it a step further, it also it also didn't cover everything that was happening at that time even. So like if food critics are only covering the super high-end French and Italian places, and I bet you they're not talk going to or covering the dope stuff that's happening at the Afghani restaurant that's near them or the Ethi mm -hmm. Ethiopian restaurant that's near them. There's always more than that one story happening. And 
I want to see like so many different voices and narratives and, and stories being teased out. And so, you know, in order to do that, we have to look around at the whole landscape and not just these like huge bastions of fine dining and think that that's it because that's the, that's really like the implication of these restaurants being covered over and over again is that people assume that that's the only type of dining we're talking about. And that's just not the case. What does this look like in the sense of not just food criticism, but even just stories um, that we're reading, recipes that are being developed? What do you see as the kind of most important thing to be done as a consumer to support good food journalism and equitable food journalism? You know, I think consumers and readers have way more power than they think they do. I think not just, you know, commenting, but also sharing stories that really like cover um, a restaurant in your neighborhood that you maybe didn't know about or a history of a chef that you maybe didn't know about. That really helps. I know me personally as a freelancer, like I, you know, the way in which people share my stories and engage with them really helps me out. It helps me get more assignments. It helps me take on more stories like the one that they liked. Um, And I think that newsrooms and publications definitely take notice of what people are excited by, what they want to see, um, what they engage with. So I think it's just, it be, it's readers and consumers becoming more engaged in the stories that they want to see in the food media landscape. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's been my favorite part about social media as a whole. Mm-hmm. There, there are these conversations about like, obviously there's so much good and bad with anything and there's so much bad that comes with social media absolute like mm-hmm. garbage 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 but <laughs> at the same point i think the concept of the democratization of voices around food and we've seen like such incredible people come out of of the just like growing a huge social following and people starting mm-hmm. to see and, and see themselves and see their own kind of niche, which is something that's so overlooked. And honestly, it's impossible to do by one publication. One publication, I think we we assign so much power and authority to a publication that, I mean, a lot of these legacy pubs have have a team of of 15 people on their editorial staff, um, if they're lucky. And to imagine covering the world of food with 15 people working 40 hours a week that's that's impossible so only when you see these things and this is like that bigger conversation about like tiktok which i don't know if you're on tiktok or if you're as obsessed i I was at the beginning of quarantine my (laughs) younger half siblings we were like sending links back and forth back and forth and then i had to let it go because like a month or two ago i had to let it go because I would be like sitting at my desk and be like, I'm a savage. What? Like doing the dance and stuff. <laughs> and well, I'm like, it know. just played a- over in my head all the time. <laughs> That's me right now. So the new thing is, it's like, uh, there's a, a very viral dance to WAP that is like going <laughs> off. And everyone, it seems like literally I'm the only one on TikTok who can't do a split. And now that's like my new goal. <laughs> That's the other thing is like these dances are intense. Like, they're very do it, intense. like 
they're doing backflips and like, you know, <laughs> throwing it back like super hard. And I'm like, uh, no, I don't have the back strength or the knee strength. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I, think I my, can't do it. <laughs> my favorite part about TikTok is how it's been able to take the internet and really segment it based on who you are. So just based on mm-hmm. what you're interacting with, what you're posting, what you're, you're talking about, you start to get connected with other people. So like a perfect example is I am in quarantine with my in-laws and I do a lot of stuff in the space of Jewish food. And one of my favorite things is like I've been cooked with my husband's mother and learn so many Iraqi Jewish dishes. And oh, that's awesome. when I post these recipes of whether it's Iraqi Jewish or Persian Jewish, just Persian, it, all of a sudden people see this and I get comments being like, I've literally never seen another person post about this before and post wow. about it from a, an account that is verified and, and it, it is on the like medium size. And it just becomes this conversation of, of the power of representation and how important that is. And absolutely, it's no different when we talk about the conversations around queer voices in food, uh, people of color. I, I just think that the ability of social is quite powerful. And I think that's why, because that's happening at such a fast rate that we are demanding the exact same standards from legacy publications. Yep. And, you know, I, I tell younger writers all the time, like, you know, you may get published in those legacy publications, but it's just like you're talking about social media, like there are so many different avenues that you can use now. There's so many cool zines and websites and that you can write for that pay as well. And you can work your way up to whatever legacy pub, or you can say, I don't care what that legacy publication is doing because they don't represent me and do your work somewhere else. Like you don't have to always align your work with the times or, you know, like you can do dope work and speak to people that are like dying to see it, that love to see it, that want to support. And you, you, there's just so many different avenues to do it now, like what you're talking about with TikTok. I love it. What do you hope for? And I guess like in terms of what you do and how it's been affected by COVID, mm-hmm. what is kind of your viewpoint in the sense of obviously it's changing by the day. Are you nervous, excited, all of the above in terms of how food media is developing in this current COVID world and then a post-COVID world? Oh, that's interesting. That's a really interesting question. I mean, I think pre-COVID, I was kind of like, eh. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then uh, at the beginning of COVID, I was like, oh, no. Um, and then, oh God, and then June, like civil unrest and racial tension. I was like, uh, um, and now I'm just kind of like, eh, again, um, it's been like quite a ride of, you know, my expectations for food media. And I guess I was hoping to see some sort of material change happen Mm. in this time. Um, you know, for, I hate the word reckoning, but people really insisted on using it. And, um, I just, I think there's way more that needs to get done. 
um, in terms of food media being like an actual like equitable space that reflects the true diversity of what's happening in food right now in this country. Um, I hope, I hope that there are conversations happening, you know, not in a public forum in like a super meaningful way, like uncomfortable, hard conversations, um, people actually divesting from power structures and white supremacists, like thought and the ways in which it shows up in our day-to-day lives in America. Um, Mm. but I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm not going to wait for that. I'm going to continue to tell the stories that center black voices. Like I've always done. I think that's the work. Amazing. This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet, founded by Ben Simon. After working for President Obama, Ben spent five years traveling the world for Greenpeace, campaigning on climate change and sustainable agriculture. He always kept his eye out for delicious food to bring back home. Now, with everyone's travels on hold and home cooking more important than ever, Bin subscriptions provide a way for home cooks to experience different food cultures each month and put together nourishing, delicious meals with the best pantry items on the planet. With Taste the World, get a new shipment of different best-in-class ingredients to explore a new cuisine each month, along with tips and tricks to help out. We're talking delicious, single-origin spices, cold-pressed olive oil, beautiful sauces, and lots of ways to use them. There's also an essential subscription which gets you a delicious assortment of heirloom, hard-to-find recipe staples. You can also get both each month with the full Ben to Table box subscription. Learn more at bentotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month, and Ben to Table will donate $10 to HRN. This conversation has been so incredible, and this leads me to my favorite part of the podcast, which is the lightning round. I'm just going to throw out. I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm just, it's so easy. I was going to throw out a few questions your way. Let me know your thoughts. Okay. Um, the first being, I love to give some time to be like, who is killing it on the gram? Who would you like to hype up in the world of food or not in the world of food? Just someone who's using social to like really like push out great content. Oh, um, so this is a... Uh... I guess this is a shameless plug, but my husband actually just launched um, a wine Instagram that's really cool. Uh, it's called Bridges Wine Culture, and it's it's so dope. Um, and I'm so proud of him and happy for him. Um, so I would say that. Um, then I also like Alicia Kennedy's Instagram. Mm. Her selfie game is always hot fire. <laughs> um, who else do I like? Um, Ashton Berry, who is a hospitality um, activist, is mm-hmm. you learn so much following her. So I would say her on Instagram too. Um, Tayshel Rao has like one of the dopest food Instagrams ever. And it's just like so casually, good. casually so, brilliant all the time. Yes. <laughs> like, um, oh my goodness. I mean, I could go on and on. Um, Goodness. Um, oh, Gabrielle um, Etienne, who's a farmer and filmmaker in North Carolina. Um, she, oh my goodness, she takes gorgeous photos. Um, and her 
boyfriend actually runs a like uh instagram where he posts videos about different plants because he's a farmer um, oh my god i love that it's so soothing and like oh yes my so, favorite yeah. part of quarantine has been diving into forager instagrams and Ooh. even like there there's this one uh we actually just i mean it just came up because we just did live with her yesterday one of our editors went live with um this girl black forager on tiktok and instagram and oh, that's so it cool. is truly the stuff she finds it's so, it makes me want to live off the land. I just want to go like build a <laughs> hut and, and just live off the land. Yeah. <laughs> when was the last time you were floored by a meal? Obviously this is pre-COVID. Pre-COVID. Um, last time I was floored by a meal. Wow. Um, I know I had some good meals. Everything seems like it was so long ago, but it wasn't. It, it was does. just pre-corona. <laughs> um, goodness, last time I was floored. Uh, this is popping into my head, but it's definitely not the most recent one. Um, but eating tacos in Mexico City with my mom um, on a, just like a, it was just like a street stand. Um, I love that. And it was uh, chopped up like, it was the combination of everything that was like on the uh, griddle. So it was mm. like beef and pork and a little bit of like innards in there too. Like it was so, so good. So I'll say that. Amazing. It sounds awesome. What, and we obviously talked about that, the, the feeling of meh, but is there <laughs> anything that is exciting you in the food space right now? And that could be, anything from an ingredient to a story you read to a new writer to anything yes um the newsletter thing is just i'm so excited by that so um i mentioned alicia before she has a great newsletter um james hansen who is a food writer in the uk um his newsletter is called indigestion and it's awesome like it's so great um also vittles out of the uk is so great um who else has one i can't remember who else has one but they're like these new sort of uh mediums where these food writers are writing about whatever the hell they want to or whatever they're thinking about whatever's happening in the food media space without the like uh, the like a publication having to sign on to it or edit it or whatever and it's so cool so like that's been really exciting to see oh and also whetstone magazine is publishing yes. content online right now, which is so cool. Amazing. And then this is my favorite question of the podcast. We play a game of Fuck, Mary Kill every episode. <laughs> um, and for you, I kept it super, super big just because we've, we've touched on so many parts and your three things are print media, digital media, and social media. Oh my God. <laughs> 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 that is the best question um oh my god <laughs> that question makes me really happy thank you for asking that um oh, anytime <laughs> uh okay it was uh social media print media and and digital and, I would... and digital okay well 
I'm gonna fuck social media because all the hot people are. I, I don't know. Like yeah, that's fair. <laughs> hey, yeah. Um, I'm gonna marry print because there's nothing like seeing your words in print in a magazine or a newspaper. Um, and I guess I'm gonna kill digital. Yeah, which is get fine. I click- hate pop up ads. So I was gonna fine. say, yeah, get rid of the clickbait. Yeah, that, um, I guess that's my answer. <laughs> amazing. I love it. Korsha, this was such an incredible conversation. I'm so happy this was our first conversation together. I feel like I am very, I'm even more excited to meet you in person. I know. I can't wait to like actually like see you in person and we'll continue this. I'll think of an even better Fuck, Mary Kill that I'll just drop on you. And I love it. I'll be ready. <laughs> we'll eat and drink and it'll be so much fun. Perfect. Thank you all so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is the Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Feed Feed and myself at Jay Cohen. And Korsha, where can everyone go follow you? Yeah, so I'm on uh, social media at Korsha Wilson and at A Hungry Society. And I have KorshaWilson.com and A Hungry Society.com for people to check out. Amazing. We will see you all next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.